I'm Gene, and this is Perfect Flow. I'm a New Zealand-based athlete and coach focused on optimizing performance, health, and well-being. While I have a professional background in biomedical engineering, I've chosen to follow my more immediate passions for running, endurance, adventure, movement, nutrition, lifestyle, community, psychology, and personal growth. My goal in starting this podcast is to connect with bright minds to extract the information I need to live a life that makes sense and feels good, and share those conversations with others. Apart from your favorite podcast app, the best places to follow my work are perfectflow.nz, genebeverage.nz, and perfectflow on Facebook. Hey, Gene here. Welcome back to Perfect Flow. Today I'm speaking with Jeremy Wong. Jeremy is a sports optometrist. If you're surprised to hear me speaking with someone who specializes in eyesight, then I think it'll be fairly clear by the end of the episode. Because of course, eyesight is very important for orienteering and navigation sports. I also found it really interesting just hearing about what actually goes wrong with the eyes and the kind of solutions that are out there for people that are struggling with eyesight. And there's also a bit of this for most people, I think, even though it might not be your problem right now, our eyesight tends to only get worse with age. So the tips around prevention, I think, are something we can all um, listen in on, even if eyesight is not uh, a problem that you're facing right now. So uh, let's get into it. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for coming on Perfect Flow. Glad to be here. Yeah, so I'm interested a little bit um, in eyesight, mainly because it intersects with the navigation sports that I'm involved in. So uh, my background is in orienteering, which is quite a finicky navigation sport where you have to read these very detailed maps and run around in the forest. And so you've got not only very fine detail to read, but also an environment that's making reading kind of challenging like the lighting can be bad and yep. the, your hands unstable you're tripping over branches and undergrowth and yep. yeah and there's a, a lot of new people coming into the sport and there's also a lot of older people that do the sport so uh, we've got people who are who, who love the the art of navigation but um eyesight doesn't get any better with age it doesn't seem and so uh, we're, we're all looking for solutions and uh, I sent you a link to those funky glasses I had on my website. Did you take a look at that? Yeah, they're um, they're quite funky. <laughs> Very funky. So trade-offs do get made. Uh, if you get glasses that are like good for maybe something like tennis, um, when you're kind of working quite hard uh, yep. doing running, but um, orienteering is kind of like slow running. So there's not much airflow. And so the glasses fog up on the inside. Yep. And so they've got this ridiculous cutout to maintain yep. airflow. And so yep. you end up just sacrificing looks, basically. Uh, you just look ridiculous, but that seems to be the trade-off people want to make. So yeah, that's the angle I'm coming at this from. And can you uh, introduce yourself and uh, what your background is and what kind of jobs you end up doing day-to-day? Uh, Sure. Um, so I'm Jeremy Wong. I'm a uh, optometrist in Auckland. Um, I specialise in sports um, vision and sports-specific eyewear. So I've been doing optometry for over, geez, 29 years. And I've had an interest in the sports vision from, gee, before I graduated. 
So um, I see a lot of different um, patients or clients uh, who come and see me at my practice and uh, ask for specialist advice on different sports um, and their visual needs. Uh, it can be ranging from uh, cyclists, triathletes, golf, golfers, runners, uh, water sports, gee, nearly anything um, I've seen and tried to help people see better on um, pursuits, be it weekend warriors or um, professional sports people. So I'm sort of accredited with High Performance Sport New Zealand. So they send me athletes to um, check their eyes if they've got problems and see if I can help them out. Cool. What, what's your uh, most common sports? You mentioned some kind of distance and endurance sports. Yeah, um, I'd say cyclists come and see me a lot um, and triathletes because they want, especially if they need a prescription to see with, um, they want visual solutions. So... Um, and that could be, of course, long-distance runners as well. So they might want to be able to see with sunglasses on if they're running into the sun or cycling into the sun, uh, especially, say, if they're doing a six-hour ride to 180 k's for an Ironman. Um, they want to have sports-specific eyewear that will meet all those needs. Um, like, I'll just show you something. So that is a pair of sports-specific, um, they're called Ready Projects. Now, those we can prescription, and they can have a photochromatic lens. So what that means is when you're in brights, uh, brights and they go dark grey, and when you're uh, at night, they're completely clear. So a uh, cyclist or runner could use those all hours and conditions that they come into and so that they could see or read whatever they needed to see. Cool. So and just you for the listeners, Jeremy's just holding up some fairly ordinary looking sports glasses but uh, obviously there's a bit of technology in the lens that to the layman you wouldn't you wouldn't know yeah so it's called a photochromatic lens and um with most sports sunglasses they're made of uh, a polycarbonate high impact resistant lens so it can't shatter so if you're riding and you behind a truck and he flicks a stone up you at 80 k's now the stone will hit the sunglasses but won't shatter it and it'll protect your eyes. Cool. Is that a problem with glass? Yeah, glass will shatter and you will potentially go Ooh. blind. <laughs> so it's interesting. A lot of people don't know that Ray-Ban sunglasses are made of glass. Some people know that. Um, and they can handle what we call a drop ball test, which is dropping a ball bearing from a certain height and the lens won't shatter. But anything bigger than that ball bearing, anything going faster than that ball bearing at that speed will shatter the lens. And so then you could have shards of glass in your eye. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a good combination to me. <laughs> Not really. So most of us are familiar with long-sighted versus short-sighted. I think you, everyone has some friends at school who discover, unfortunately, that they either can't read books up close or they um, learn to drive for the first time and find they you know, have some problems with long-sighted. Uh, th those are like the main two variables to the layman, but... What other variables are there that come into affecting people's eyesight other than just that one spectrum? Okay, so you've got short-sightedness, which is where um, it's blurry in the distance. So you can't see past six metres and you need them for TV and driving. 
And so that means you've got good short sight, so you can read without glasses on. Okay, and then conversely, you have long-sighted people who theoretically have good long sight, so they can see well in the distance, um, but they might find reading a little bit trickier. Okay, so you've got those two things. Then you have something called astigmatism. That's where the shape of the eye is more rugby ball shaped rather than perfectly round. And that gives you more visual distortion. A lot of people have astigmatism. It's nothing to be concerned about. It just um, is a shape variation on the eye. And um, so that's prevalent in a lot of people. But that how, does, can, how does that affect yeah, the experience of seeing? Uh, so an eye will look like an egg or a distorted egg. Huh. And so then that can blur things for you. Um, so, um, yeah, that's another factor, and that can be with the short-sightedness or long-sightedness. You've got those things. Then you have something called presbyopia, which kicks in around 45, which is where reading starts to get harder because the lens inside your eye becomes blurry. And so, um, yeah, the eye muscles around the lens become less flexible, and the lens becomes less flexible. So because of that, you can't read, and you need reading glasses. So this is interesting where it links in with your um, orienteering guys who are over 45 and they want to be able to read a map, you know, your course with all the fine um, topography and landmarks um, and they're very, very small. So they need some way of being able to read the small print uh, while running. Uh, and so there are different ways of doing that. Uh, one is that funky pair of glasses you sort of show me, which can work, um, has its limitations. Um, there are contact lenses, special contact lenses that can let people read and send the distance. They're called multifocal contacts. They can work very well. Uh, it just depends on the person's prescription and how well um, the vision is due to the how the optics work. So that's a great one because you don't have to frame on, you don't have to wear glasses. So you yeah, can run you on the right. You mentioned um, multifocal. So yeah, the glasses that uh, are most common with the orienteers are, are bifocal. Can you explain yep. what bifocal and multifocal mean and yeah. why there's so, yeah, something secondary going on with those multifocal ones? Yeah, so a bifocal has a moon segment, like an upside down moon segment in it. It's a very traditional old school way of reading and seeing in the distance. So um, they give a very good area down for reading and they give a very good area looking in the distance but they don't give you what we call intermediate area, which is just past your hand. Um, then you have what we call a multifocal progressive lens. And what that should do is see in the distance, see arm's length and read. Um, and so there's no line on one of those, whereas a bifocal is a great big line going across the middle of the lens. I, I so, see. So the bi is um, referring to the fact that if you're looking above the, the half moon shape, yep. there's... It's right to say there's no magnification um, if you're it's looking just straight distance. through. Yeah, but just but if you're looking down, then you're through some kind of convex lens, and so there's two kind of different mo two different modes there, and that's the yeah. bi and the bifocal. Okay. Yeah, and so that lets you read in the bottom part. Okay. The and there's a, a discrete change between those two parts, which is where you get that line. Yeah, very distinct. Whereas the other uh, one is a smooth progression. So there's no line on it. And most people have progressive glasses uh, or multifocal glasses. Um, but they both have their limitations. Um, contact lenses are ideally the, the way to go, but some people can't wear contacts or don't want to wear contacts. So they have to wear a, a 
a multifocal or bifocal to read. And then you can have a bifocal or a multifocal put into a sports frame, like the one I showed you before, and they can wear that. And they're designed for sport. So um, they sit well on the bridge. They fit well behind the ears. Um, they're designed by athletes um, and purpose-made and purpose-built. So um, there are lots of options, which some people just don't know about because they can't find information or they haven't gone to the right optometrist. Cool. So what, what was there, um, before I, I cut you off there, was there uh, another uh, challenge with the eyes in addition to long-sighted short cycle oh, and stigmatism? Uh, uh, oh, and no, then there was no, a fourth... Uh, no, that was it. It was the presbyopia, which is where the reading gets harder, and then astigmatism and long and short-sightedness. Mm -hmm. And depending on how much short-sightedness or astigmatism you have um, depends on what could be the best option. Contact lenses are often the best option for a sports person. If we can fit contact lenses, they're the way to go. You know, they'll, they'll give them... Uh, good vision, peripheral vision, so you don't have a frame on. Like I said, you know, lenses don't get um, wet, you know, and, and smeary when you're running in the rain. Um, but not everyone can wear contacts. Why can't everyone wear contacts? I think I've heard of someone, one of my friends, having kind of dry eyes that were too dry or something. But apart oh, from yeah, that, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I don't know what, what else. Uh, yeah, some people have dry eyes where they don't produce enough tears. So their tear composition isn't as good as it could be and then the tears break up and evaporate, and then that can lead to what we call dry eyes. And so that makes the lenses more uncomfortable uh, to wear. People can't tolerate wearing them for you know, maybe only a few hours, whereas normally you should be able to wear them like 8, 12, 14 hours plus a pair of contacts. And some people can't put the lenses in their eyes, or some people um, don't like putting a contact lens in their eye, mm. so they can't have it. Um, so, of course, the other option then is LASIK or laser surgery where they could have their correction done by an ophthalmologist with a laser and then it takes away the short-sightedness, long-sightedness and the astigmatism, uh, but it doesn't help them necessarily read. What kind of things do they do with the laser? Oh, um, as in uh, what's the procedure? Or... Yeah, yeah, what's the procedure? So, I mean, first off, shining a laser into someone's eyes, firstly, sounds like a bad idea. So they're obviously not like shining it straight to the retina. What are they doing? Um, um, they um, they do what they call a little uh, flap. So that's the front of the eye, the curve on what we call the cornea, okay, which is the clear part over the uh, iris. They cut a little wee flap into that and lift it up, and then they fire the laser into the cornea and shape it like little wee laser pulses then okay so the, the laser flap. doesn't penetrate very deeply uh, correct into the eye so it's, it's mainly yep. superficial okay it's microns yeah. um, okay. and it's so precise and then that takes um little layers of the cornea away and then uh the flap goes back on and it's very very quick it's so for um, 30 seconds wow. and then um the eye heals up very very quickly from that and then usually the person can see remarkably well in the distance. Okay. And I'm imagining they don't do the little blasting away 
on the actual surface of the cornea because that's really important how smooth that is. Yeah. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So it's but, beneath that. Yeah. Right. And the the tissues of the eye just you know sort themselves out under the surface, but you don't want to mess up the smoothness of that outer layer of the cornea. Yeah, correct. That's uh, not good if that's if that's not smooth. <laughs> cool. Um, I was also thinking with the the multifocal, the progressives. So with the glasses, you're taking advantage of the fact that the long sightedness is always up more, yep. and the medium sightedness. Yep. Uh, that's the way the, the world is. Normally, we hold yep. hold a book <laughs> below the horizon. But um, with the contacts, is other contacts have that similar um, approach where uh, actually the contact is not you know, perfectly symmetrical, it's like thicker at the bottom or something. How does that work? Uh, very good question. So um, so with, with glasses, okay, um, it's ergonomic design. So the top half is all distance, okay? So it's like watching TV driving. And then you look a little bit lower and then you get what we call the intermediate. Then you look lower again, just like you'd look at your phone right now and you're looking down with your neck. That's the reading area, okay? So that's how progressive glasses work. When you have multifocal contacts, they're made with concentric circles and what we call a near zone and a distant zone. Okay, so the optics are really convex in this little wee piece of plastic that's like 14 millimeters wide and so, so thin. And what it does is, um, because of the optics and how your pupil works, um, lets you read and see in the distance. So it's like what we'd say is your, your old vision comes back, like you used to have in your youth when you're... Um, 45, you can see in the distance and see and read without the glasses on. Now, sometimes, depending on the person's prescription, they may get, there may be a compromise. So they may get better near vision compared to better distance vision, depending how the lenses work on their eyes. Well, they may have great distance vision and so-so reading. So we find out what um, the patient needs or the athlete needs okay so if they say like an orienteer oh no i need to have to see really close and see all the little you know the uh little map details great i'll make it so i've got that as good as i can and if the distance is a little bit soft that's fine because they know where they're going they can see the tree they're looking at the tree or anything like that and then that caters for it and um, there is one other way of doing it and i've got a um i've got an orienteer who's wearing it um and he's got what we call monovision. So this is another way of doing it where we have one eye for the distance and one eye for reading. Now, it sounds a bit weird, but it's based on the monocle where you permanently have one lens in front of the eye and it would let you read. So, you know, you see all the war movies and those guys wearing monocles. It would let them read and then look in the distance. So it's, uh, it sounds an unusual concept, but it can work very, very well. It's a bit, it's a bit unusual though for an athlete to do it because you're not binocular. So you're monocular. So it's not so good if you're playing tennis because <laughs> you haven't got 3D cues. Um, can be a little tricky for some people who are, who are doing a lot of running, you know, like footing and stuff like that. But the ones who can handle it, who have good footwork and balance, they're fine. So does that affect your depth perception? Um, it Is does. that the issue? Mm. Yeah, that's the issue, but it does let you read. Cool. And it and, does let you, um, yeah. Cool. So I think you mentioned you had one patient who had, who you'd kind of gone through that process with. Maybe you've heard of more. How tough is it at first? And can you adapt to it if it's uncomfortable at first? It, have you noticed like a, a period of weeks or months where 
you can actually retrain your brain and your your habits to to work around the new setup. It depends on the person, on the person's visual system. Some people can handle um, a little bit of it, a slight disparity between the two, and that's usually fine. Uh, And they can adapt to it pretty well. Uh, When we try it, people know within a minute whether they like it or not. Because if they don't, they feel like they're sick and they're going to fall over and, you know, they're, they're a bit woozy. But most people can handle it. Um, and then there comes to a, what we call a threshold point where it's too much disparity and the brain doesn't like it and you just can't use it. That's when we've come to the limit of how the monovision works. You'd have to be very committed at that stage to the importance of this to keep trying to train yourself. I imagine it's possible oh, yeah. if someone spends enough time, but you'd have to be really determined yeah um yeah if if especially if it's if it's just not working you you're going to give up because it's just not going to do it um but this particular um guy he um has adapted brilliantly and i've changed his prescription and you know tweaked things and he loves it wow that's really incredible and yeah, it sounds like there is someone who's started doing that in the community. So I'd be interested to see how how that spreads because it has come up, but semi-jokingly. Like, <laughs> some, yeah, like it's, I don't know if it's dawned on quite so many people that it is actually possible, maybe not um, perfection, but to move in that mm-hmm. direction is possible. Yeah, so that, that's um, interesting. Yeah, I mean, if... The optometrist um, isn't thinking that way or thinking about the sports recreation that their patient sitting in their chair has, or it's not been asked or, or you know, mentioned, uh, then they're not going to give that solution. Do you know what I mean? Because, you know, as an optometrist, you're here to try and help people's visual needs. So you've got to find out what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where their values are at. And some people, yeah, this, this sport is a major part of their life and being able to continue yeah. doing it uh, is of yeah, really high importance. So this does seem inevitable that the eye, at least with the, this kind of stiffening or lower of lower elasticity of, of the lens is kind of yep. inevitable with age. Yep. Are there any ways to slow that process down? Uh, no, no, it's like death and taxes. It's going to yeah. get you. So, um, <laughs> From the age of 45, from, you know, as soon as you, when you're growing up, it's becoming less flexible. And 45 seems to be this magical date of a year for a person to start noticing um, it gets harder to read. So you can't uh, stop it. And the only thing you can do is um, have something to help you read. Yeah. 45 is, is not that old either. I think we used to feel that it was happening a little bit older and it's only been in the last five years that the orientarian community has acknowledged that people's eyesight is going downhill around 45. And so those grades are now getting uh, much more zoomed in maps than uh, what they they used to, whereas it used to kind of be more like the 55s and and older would get, um, or maybe even older than that, we're, we're only getting special treatment. And there was this kind of unfortunate group in the middle who were older than 45, but ignored. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. Like the, um, you say they've sort of, um, what, sort of been ignored a little bit. Um, 
again, it's because they got a need, but it hasn't been met. I mean, if they're blowing up the map, fantastic. You know, they've got massive maps. That's great. It's a bit big, but hard looking at a massive map <laughs> carrying that around with you when you're doing yeah. your orienteering. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was just thinking, is there an orienteering, like, magazine or anything like that? Is it like New Zealand orienteering? Or do you there, have there, a website? There has been, yeah, there has been in the past. Uh, most of it has transitioned to uh, websites and it has been difficult yep. keeping up a, a formal magazine in New Zealand. Um, the, the scene's much bigger in Europe, so there's, uh, yep. a, a, there's plenty of uh, magazines dedicated to uh, orienteering and other navigation and adventure sports over there. Um, but in New Zealand, is there a, um, a website um, where people, mm. you know, there, there you could, like I could post an article if they wanted? Uh, we'll see. Yeah. Um, I'm probably the, the best contact in there because I do some work for them. Um, yep. but, but yeah, yeah, definitely that there is um, orienteering.org.nz is the uh, website of the national body, the federation. And yeah, we are, we are trying to get like more, more community stuff and yeah, that the magazine, the old magazine would have been kind of the way to do it, but yeah, it's definitely hard to keep up a, a paper magazine uh, in, in modern times. So that, that one has slid, slid by. Yeah. So it's a little more ad hoc, but yeah, there's definitely, um, definitely a platform to get more of that. In. And, and the interest is, is so huge because the community is so passionate about this particular sport, like the yep. people who are doing it kind of against all odds and yep. they obviously really love it. And to see um, them come up against such a, like a no deal kind of challenge with, right. with eyesight, then yeah, there's, yep. there's definitely uh, a lot of interest and a lot of people coming from other adventure sports uh, into adventure, yep. in, like distance endurance sports into adventure racing, which now has a lot of navigation components people yep. who never realized they had a problem. Yep. Especially with a lot of the stuff um, that's over 24 hours long. Some yep. of that's at nighttime. So uh, yep. if you, yeah, if you're having trouble reading the day, then there's a lot of people who are having massive problems. Uh, yeah. That's nighttime. another so thing. Mm. Sorry. With um, someone who's over 45, they need more light to read. So the eye um, needs more contrast. So whites and blacks. So you're going to need a head torch to read a map or anything in low light. It's just so much harder. So you need your head torch and your optical mm. device or solution to help them read a map, you know. And um, I've got, um, I was bringing up the, the association or, or um, thing about orienteering. Like I've done articles for um, paragliding. I've done golf articles, triathlete articles, where I think it's more important to educate people about the options, you know, they don't have to come and see me. If they're in Auckland, great. If they can make it to see me in Newmarket, wonderful. But if they don't, they can go to a, their local optometrist and say, I've seen this. Can you tell me about this solution? And then the optometrist can hopefully help them out. Yep, yep. No, I think that makes makes total sense. And I uh, wouldn't be surprised to see a flood of interest. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll chase that up later. Uh, I had so a final set of questions just about the kind of testing that you do yep. and how you do it. I'm sure most of us have been to the GP at some stage and they get you to stand at some distance from, from a wall. And maybe it was at high school, we had some like basic test and you read the letters. 
Yeah. That slowly gets smaller and smaller. But for most of us, that is the extent to which we've seen eyesight testing done. So yeah, what other things do you do? And when we do that kind of testing, the, the kind of wording that we use is like most of us are like 2020. I'm not exactly yep. sure what that means. So maybe you can explain that. And then, yeah, some, some people are not 2020. Um, I've heard 2010 or something. Um, yep. Not quite sure what that means. But yeah, maybe you could uh, explain those two things. Sure. So, um, so 2020 is uh, imperial measurements. So it's 20 feet, whereas we say 6'6 six, because six, it's metric. So when you hear uh, Americans say, oh, I've got 2020 vision, that means they've got normal vision, which is 6'6, six, six, all right? So that means you can see a certain size image at six meters or a certain size letter six meters away. And so if you have better vision than 6'6, six, six, it's called 6'5, six, 6 over 5, all right? Or 6 over 4, which is very good vision, which is sort of like 20 over 10, which is sort of like fighter pilot, top gun stuff. All right. And then if you are very short sighted or very long sighted, you might have uh, what we call 60 over six, which means you have to see a heck of a lot bigger letter at six meters. So it's a lot blurrier. And so uh, we're checking that when we check the vision, what you can see when you sit down in, in the examination chair. And then we find out if we can improve that so you can get to 6.6, six, that could be with glasses. Often it is, that's the first thing. So we're not just doing um, the visual check, we're checking the health of the eyes, seeing if the retina at the back of the eye is healthy, seeing the structures at the front are healthy, what we call the conjunctival, which is the white bit uh, around the outside of the eye. That can be uh, affected by UV damage and uh, you can get things called pterygiums growing and um, pinguiculae. These are just normal things that can happen with a lot of sun exposure. So that's why it's important to wear sunnies, UV blocking sunnies when you're out training or in the sun. So we check for those things and then we check for things like uh, glaucoma. We take photos of the back of the eye, digital photos. We can do what we call OCT 3D subretinal scans where we have a look at structures beneath the retina. We take eye pressures. So we do comprehensive eye examinations, not just look what you can see on a chart. And they can range from, I mean, some optometrists do them in 20 minutes. Um, I like to allocate 45 minutes to an hour to do that. So that's just a normal eye examination. But then I have my sports vision eye examinations where I'm looking at an athlete, what visual tasks they do. Uh, say if they're a uh, cricketer, for instance, I'm finding out if they have problems in any area of their, their uh, performance, like, oh, I keep missing, you know, I, I get bold always when it comes down, um, you know, leg side. And I go, okay, well, where's it, where's it going? Can you not see the ball? They go, oh, I just seem to lose it, you know, and so I'm finding out why they get bold out there all the time, do you know what I mean? Or why they can't see uh, the ball being released from the uh, bowler's hand. So I check out what the sport is find out what the deficit is and whether I can correct it or I can train it. So that's another whole thing where I can train um, an athlete's, uh, for instance, their hand-eye performance, hand-eye speed. So I can, uh, I've got a piece of gear that lets me um, train um, the speed of how fast someone can use their hands. And I can do it to 
uh, a microsecond the um, the um, the speed and check the performance and improvement for an athlete. So, like someone in uh, a ball sport, say rugby league, something like that, or um, I've done it for hockey goalies, where I'm increasing how fast they can move their hands and get to a ball or an object. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And yeah, it just proves the simple point that taking a single dimensional measurement doesn't come close to capturing all the things that are going on uh, in, in most sports. Um, one last thing that I'm not sure if it's your area of expertise or not. What about colorblindness? Is that who, who ends up dealing with that medically? Uh, well, we can diagnose it. So we've got color vision tests and uh, the most common one is called the Ishihara test, which is the dots. Uh, you can say like six and four or three, and then some people just can't see them. Uh, and that's um, due to the rods and cones and a deficit there. So we will diagnose it. Some color vision defects you cannot cure. They just built into the, um, to the retina. And so some people cannot see uh, um, tonality between uh, red and green. So if you had a rainbow of shirts on a rack, a lot of them would just look brown, you know? So they'd be uh -huh. saying, oh, pick out the orange shirt and they'll go, where? Or the red shirt or the subtleties in the colours, they can't pick it. So um, sadly, you can't do a lot. So a uh, person has a, uh, an extreme colour vision um, deficiency, um, uh, can't be a pilot can't be an electrician. It's not a good graphic designer because they come up with mm. weird color combinations. <laughs> um, so it does limit some people, sadly. Um, you can get um, special sunglasses which filter the rays of light coming in and apparently can give some people with color vision defects uh, some color perception they didn't have. And they are available. There's, I think, only one practice in New Zealand that does it. Um, and I'm not 100% sure of what the person sees, but we can see how it could effectively change colours for them. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and also something that does come up in orienteering. I have one friend who does have some colour blindness and the, yep. the mapping colour standards are getting better and right. they take the colour blindness into account. So in theory someone with some of the more common color blindness yep. issues can uh, still participate, but obviously that, that there's quite a spectrum and um, yeah, I'm sure there's people who just have so little access to some colors that uh, it's pretty hard to, to work pretty hard yeah, to work around I mean, it by the sounds of it. Yeah. Um, if I don't know, are you orienteering maps in color or just black and white? No, they're very colourful. Right. Okay, so they're showing topographical colour changes. Right. Yeah, that can be tricky. Um, yeah, that could be very tricky. Yeah, it, it's, um, I think it's less about the accuracy of the colour and more about making sure that there's no particular colour on the map that a colour blindness, uh, that someone with colour blindness might get confused with another colour. Yeah. So as long as, even if they do have a colour blindness, they can still tell the difference between all possible combinations, then that's kind of important. Otherwise you have these two colors that should be side by side and the boundary of which should show something distinctive in the terrain, but they can't even see the boundary. So that's kind of worst case. So if, are you given the map 
just before you do the course. Yeah, typically with with orienteering in a race in a race setting. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So you just go here's the map, go. Basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it's really up to the organizers to make sure that uh, it's printed correctly. I mean, not just correct on the computer, yep. but you know the the, yep. the printing process itself had. Uh, produce the the colors as specified so there's kind of some specifications that right. um, you're supposed to do test prints with the proper printing yep. process before anything serious obviously your yeah. lo yep. local community races don't don't uh, go to that standard but yeah it's right. something that it's something that comes up and kind of gets worked around but yeah it'll, it'll be interesting to see uh, kind of where those gla those glasses go in the future and whether there is some new innovation that could come out of that I think that they are quite expensive, those glasses, and they may not always work um, to the degree of what a normal person's colour vision is. So they won't necessarily give a, a person the whole spectrum of colours um, that you may need, you know, in an orienteering map. I mean, the only way around it would be is if they photocopied it in black and white so that there is no colour. Yeah, that's person, right, yeah. I mean, sure, they don't see the tonality, but they could see the grey tonalities. Uh, they just wouldn't see because, and then they could, you know, have a similar, you know, reading of the map that a colour vision. Yeah, it would certainly level the playing field, does. and maybe there's something you can yeah. add with finer textures, you know, as opposed oh, to. Oh, that'd be um, pretty, pretty tech. Yeah, that'd be in interesting. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, um, that's certainly satisfied my curiosity. Uh, if there's anything else you'd, you'd like to add about uh, this world of eyesight and sports, then, yeah, I'm, I'm still interested. Um, so with sports vision, um, there's, there's three things. It's, well, two main things. It's called protection and correction. So protection is protecting someone's eyes, okay? So that's what I was talking about, sports sunglasses, where, you know, you, one, protecting your eyes from UV, to protecting them from a projectile. Uh, like I've got um, people who um, shoot, uh, pistol shooting, claywood shooting, and they're all wearing safety glasses because they need to. Um, but, you know, a lot of, not a lot, some cyclists don't wear protective eyewear, you know, and it's it could happen. You can get, you know, quite a awful, awful sight-impairing um, injury, like squash players, it's, it's, it's crazy. The squash ball is, is virtually the same size as an eyeball. Okay, so it's a high-speed projectile with a lot of kinetic energy. Okay, if that hits your eye, you are a goner. Okay, um, but the professionals um, don't wear uh, protective eyewear. They wear them in doubles, but they don't wear them in singles. And I think the youth are required to, but not all of them do. And so... It's often not the person's fault. It can be a mishit, it could be a ricochet, and they've got permanent eye damage from playing a sport they enjoy but could have been protected with sports eyewear. Uh, so those are things I like to highlight because, you know, it's a simple thing and it could save someone's eyes. And then correction is being able to see the thing you want to see. Like I've got, I had a, um, a well-known rugby league player and he um, was having trouble getting the high ball. Um, so when a you know, bomb was delivered to him, he, he was losing it. And I checked his eyes and found out um, he had a very small prescription. 
in his vision. Not a huge amount, but enough to blur him a bit. So then um, I fitted him with contact lenses and he said it was amazing because now he could see the the ball and the low light and the light's better because your contrast goes down. So it's harder to see the things. And he, um, his natural talent was amazing. So he was catching all those high balls and being an amazing uh, rugby league player beforehand. But when you corrected them, he could play even better because he could see the ball. I mean, it's something quite simple, but that's interesting with sports vision. Um, a lot of coaches don't know about it, okay, for professional sports teams. It's only now just becoming a little bit more... Um, part of um, what you could do for an athlete. So you've got um, American NFL teams and baseball teams. They're huge on sports vision. So um, it's an athlete needs to have their vision. If you can't see, you can't do your sport. But people don't think to have their eyes tested because they don't know what they don't know. Okay, So if it's blurry, they think it's normal. And then they go and see an optometrist and think, oh, far out. I could see better. And you've got the solution. That's the correction part. Um, it was interesting. Back, this is a long time ago, back in 1980, I think it was the LA Games, Olympic Games. They, um, Bausch and Lom, who make um, contact lenses, they had a, a booth there to test athletes' eyes. And they found out that I think more than 85% of top world class athletes had never had an eye examination. And they found so many that weren't seeing well, just from doing a screening test. And this is the best of the best, you know, and these people, you know, were doing it mainly off natural talent. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. When you think of how many, how much time a lot of these athletes have spent with a physio or um, yeah. you know, on the massage table trying to optimize yeah. all these other little things. Yeah, nutritionist, um, you know, sports coach, psychology, weights, everything else, but eyes, no. <laughs> Yeah, I get the sense as well in the orienteering community that, uh, that there are a lot of people who are just battling. And uh, I think just this conversation can hopefully um, prove the, the point that uh, you were saying earlier that um, there is there are people out there to help and it's pretty accessible. But it's just yeah. not kind of part of the conversation. So hopefully this can bring it into the conversation a little bit. Well, I've, I've learned a lot. So thanks a lot for sharing your time, Jeremy. Pleasure. If you're enjoying the Perfect Flow podcast and want more value from it in the future, there are some ways you can support it. The first is to rate or leave a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or other platforms where it's available. The second is to share this podcast or specific episodes on social media or with friends. The third is to get involved more directly through the Perfect Flow page on Facebook where I'm trying to construct a more interactive community. I want Perfect Flow to belong to the listeners, and if you tell me what topics you're most interested in, or even suggest specific guests, I'll do my best to make it happen. This is your opportunity to be part of something that answers your questions and adds value to your life. Another good reason to follow Perfect Flow on Facebook is that I post links to episodes, blog posts, and anything I find useful to this page. It's a great way to follow my training, racing, and learning. Another great way to stay engaged is to subscribe to genebeverage.nz. This way you will get podcasts and blogs emailed to you, avoiding the clutter of Facebook. 
I don't know where this project will take us, but the reception so far has been positive. Who knows where we might be in a few years.